A note to our listeners before we get started. This podcast contains offensive and violent content. Please be advised. Previously on Verified. The white people in the world, we are the minority, and we are the minority to to be protected. We don't need our white supremacists in Europe, in the United States, Canada, whatever, Western white supremacists hooking up with a regime that is vehemently anti-Western. By collaborating with Nazis who are pro-Hitler and who are pro-Third Reich and pro-concentration camps, do you not become a collaborator of theirs as well? I don't think so. Until now, we focus mainly on the growing network of extremists outside the United States and on Stanislav Vorobiev and his role as a worldwide connector of white supremacists. Now, if you remember, he's the leader of the Russian Imperial Movement, or RIM. But before the U.S. designated Stanislav and his group as terrorists, RIM had made inroads inside the United States with a man well-known within American extremist circles. And like his Russian friends, he's a man who's now targeting his hate in a bigger and more dangerous direction. Like, I pray for the death of the United States every day. I hate this country. I hate everything it stands for. I hate the Constitution. I hate it from the first day of colonization till now. And if I was offered citizenship tomorrow uh, in Russia or Iran, I would uh, definitely get on a plane and leave. I'm Natasha Del Toro, and this is Verified, The Next Threat. Mark, so you came across this American extremist, a a guy by the name of Matt Heimbach, who, by the sound of it, doesn't like the United States very much. Now, Tell me exactly, how is he connected to the Russian imperial movement and all of this last crusade business? Well, Natasha, in short, Matt actually brought the Russian imperial movement and its ideas right here to the United States. I mean, I'm I'm talking about he physically brought members of the group here to network with Americans. Now, RIM's leader, Stanislav Vorobiev, told me that he's actively recruiting Americans right now for that new global holy war that he calls the last crusade. You know, so, so naturally, I, I wanted to know everything there was to know about how this Russian group is, is finding potentially sympathetic Americans, you know, and, and also anything else that, that I could learn about how, how they're trying to make inroads uh, either here or, or anywhere around the world. So I, I called up Matt hoping that he'd tell me how and where he first met the Russians. And to my surprise, he agreed to a Zoom call. Um, all right, let me hit this record to make sure this works. Okay, it looks like it's going. I have a separate thing I've got to hit record on over here. Uh, so I began by trying to get to know more about Matt in, in order to understand the kind of guy that the Russian imperial movement would see as a potential asset in the U.S., So I end up um, becoming a fascist because, like, where can I advocate for members of my own community where I can be a white person, which I am? So uh, I spend a wacky 10-year journey in uh, American white nationalism, um, being a leader of a fascist organization. 
Matt's commitment to fascist ideas is, is literally engraved into his body. As we're talking, I notice a tattoo on his bicep that looks like a Nazi-era symbol. That's um, an iron cross with my wife's name in it. So that's, that's, not, that's not my most scandalous tattoo. Um, I just really don't go anywhere shirtless except the bedroom usually. So it, it doesn't really come up. Um, I don't go, I, I definitely go, don't go swimming at the local pool. Having the whole swastika over the heart thing uh, opens up a lot of awkward conversations. Um, oh, a swastika tattooed on his heart? That's, uh, what, a, what a sweetheart that guy is. I mean, yeah, it's jarring, right, Natasha? You know, but over the years, Matt really did become an important guy in the neo-Nazi world. The Southern Poverty Law Center dubbed him the Little Fuhrer back in 2014. And three years later, he became a major promoter of that deadly Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville. Jews will not replace us! That's the event where white guys were out with tiki torches enchanting slurs like Jews will not replace us. And it's also where things turned deadly, where a man ended up driving into a crowd, killing Heather Heyer. I mean, this is a guy who actually wanted to bring about the rise of a new Nazi era in the United States. And, and he believes in anti-Semitic conspiracy theories, like that idea we keep talking about of this secret society that's somehow ruling the world uh, that has a lot of Jews at the top who are pulling strings for capitalists and some kind of global elite. You know, but it turns out that this is exactly the kind of guy that the Russians wanted to seek out for an extended visit to the United States. And so, only a few weeks after a man drove his car into a crowd at Charlottesville, killing Heather Heyer, the Russian imperial movement hopped on a plane and came to visit one of that rally's key promoters. Did you start the connection with the Russians? Did you reach out to them or did they reach out to you? Um, you know, I had connections with European nationalists already and uh, eventually that got you know, into uh, meeting members of RIM. Where were you in Europe when you actually, for the first time, connected with them? Um, I think I was at an Alliance um, Alliance for Peace and Freedom meeting that was in the Czech Republic. Now, hold on, Mark. That The Alliance for Peace and Freedom, that's the same group in Europe that we heard about in our last episode, right? I mean, these were the guys that were meeting with Hezbollah, which... Of course, is another designated terrorist group. Yes, uh, you know that that is the same group, Natasha. Uh, the Alliance for Peace and Freedom is an ultra right group in Europe. You know, but what I want to do for a moment, Natasha, is show you uh, one photo that that sort of brings all of these connections together. All right, so I um, I just clicked on the link. I'm looking at. Twitter. And there is Matt Heimbach. He's wearing a yellow shirt and he's got a big smile on his face and he's standing in front of a flag that I'm not familiar with. Yeah, it's a, it's a Russian imperial flag. And, um, and, and take a look at his shirt. There's some writing in Arabic. In the Arabic writing, uh, when you translate it to English, says party of God which is talking about Hezbollah, the, the Lebanese militants. This is, this is actually, on, on Heimbach's shirt, this is, he's actually wearing the flag for Hezbollah. You know, so what you have here, putting it together, is the Russian imperial movement, Hezbollah, Matt Heimbach, they're all networking through the very same European far-right group, the Alliance for Peace and Freedom. 
Europe is burning. We see immigrant gangs taking over our streets, our women get raped. We see our societies getting worse and worse. You're listening to the racist rhetoric that's really at the heart of one of the promotional videos for the Alliance for Peace and Freedom's 2016 annual meeting. And I invite you all from all over Europe, America, and the rest of the European descendant people to share this important day together with us. Now, this, this group is still active. I mean, they, they, they just, in fact, went on a rant on their website in May of 2021 about how their allies are under attack from, and I'm quoting here, the global elite. You know, keep hearing about that, right? The, the code for the same secret society that uh, that Matt Heimbach uh, doesn't like, and that you know uh, others like uh, Stanislav Robiev and the Russian Imperial Movement, uh, you know, are, are battling right now. Now, on their website, this ultra-right European group is actually promising what they say is a counterattack. And I should tell you, Matt did not just go over to Europe you know, one time. He's, he's repeatedly gone uh, since uh, 2013, you know, with the idea being that he wants to try to learn from the Alliance for Peace and Freedom uh, about its tactics, and he wants to learn from its network. The American white nationalist movement, um, pardon my language, but is like fucking stupid and has been stupid for a really long time. Like when I got involved in college activism, there was no propaganda. I had to go back to a 25-year-old National Alliance leaflet to get a graphic that then I could change the words on to have propaganda. Like nothing had been created um, with white nationalism. But Europeans have uh, – they have music. Uh, they have really cool art design. They have uh, propaganda leaflets. Almost every party has not just one but like multiple newspapers. And they, they truly created and have like a dynamic – subcultural identity like the the party right so for me one of the big reasons of going to europe wasn't just to like shake hands and you know meet people but it was to learn how to totally ignore everything the american movement had done forever and just throw all that out and then try and figure out how we can do what they were doing in an american context so trying to learn from people that were successful um, and then trying to Americanize it, which I think TWP did a very good job uh, with very limited resources in a way that no other group has been able to copy or come close to, you know, not to, not to pat myself on the back for the whole fascism thing, but, you know. Matt tells me that it was it was not just that one meeting in the Czech Republic that he that he went to. He, he got the chance to mingle with the Russian imperial movement. Did you see them again at another uh, at another event? Yeah, I went to several uh, Alliance for Peace and Freedom conferences um, between, I mean, pretty much I went to Europe every year um, from 2013 um, to 2018. The great thing, though, is uh, all you ever had to pay was the ticket, um, you know, because comrades, like, they've got a developed infrastructure. Like, when I went to Germany, that, like, I was put up. And, you know, as a, as a comrade, they would take care of you. And the same when Europeans would come here. That network of solidarity, you know, really was helpful. Over time, after after more than one of these face to face meetings, you know the relationship grew, uh, and eventually Matt decided to invite Rim to fly across the ocean and land on American soil, and meet like minded people here. And, and to Matt's delight, the Russians accepted. 
So that was that was fun. You know, got to go uh, hang out in Dollywood. Um, you know, do a lot of uh, sedition against the American government. Um, you know, going on roller coasters and we having good southern barbecue. Going to battlefields and taking them to American, you know, the American History Museum and stuff like that. Um, but uh, yeah, good guys. But this this was no tourist trip. The visit lasted for weeks. And it included stops in places like Washington, D.C. You know, there's there's a photo of Matt standing next to a, a delegate from RIM. They're posing while they're holding up a Russian imperial flag right in front of the White House. The key thing here, uh, Natasha, is that they're together in person in America, eating, drinking and traveling together and solidifying bonds. So, uh, but yeah, on a personal level, I'd like to think I got to know the Rim guys pretty well because um, I am also Russian Orthodox. Um, we shared a lot of principles, and having guys actually come over and you know spend weeks together traveling the country and introducing them to comrades and stuff like that, I think was an experience that maybe no one else in America has had, uh, and I'm happy to have had it. You know, keep in mind this is a few years back. You know, Heimbach tells me right now that, that since RIM ha- has actually been designated as a terrorist organization, he says that he hasn't had any further contact with them. Um, and interestingly, he also told me that he ha- had not heard of The Last Crusade before, but he does think that it sounds cool. He thinks it sounds cool. Uh, I mean, he thinks that the, that this designated terrorist organization's new crusade sounds cool. You know, I guess I'm just, I don't really understand Matthew Heinbach. Like, wh- why does he hate America so much? Well, I asked him, you know, and what it comes down to is, 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 is it really goes back to this same conspiracy theory that we're talking about, the secret society, you know, the the so-called New World Order, that, that that's the name of the group that's allegedly meeting in like a back room and controlling the world. Turns out that Matt says that the United States government and also Israel are, are key players in that conspiracy. Without America, Israel uh, would be able to punch out of its weight class. You know, it really comes down to like just death to America. Just... You've sort of been on the record saying that, that, that the Jews are in charge of the new world order. Is that still your belief? Well, I mean, Jews disproportionately um, do have a stake when it comes to high finance and things like that. So this is really just, you know, some real anti-Semitic stuff that he's that he's saying here. But uh, Matt also says, by the way, that it's the Jews uh, who are actually in control of the American government. And so he says together uh, they're both preventing what American fascists are, are dreaming of, which is to one day have a, a white ethno state where white people can live alone and govern themselves. The Zionist occupation government will not allow them to do that. They will bomb the shit out of them and burn their children alive like the U.S. government did uh, at Waco. Is it too simplistic to say that, 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 that fascists who want to get away from brown people and create a white ethno state, you believe that, 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 that they're blocked by Jews? Well, I mean, by the government, but who runs the government, right? The Zionist occupation government. Right, the real government. Uh, there, there's no American elected official that uh, can truly be anti-Zionist. 
but but after after the Unite the Right rally, Matt fell into some legal troubles, and and he recanted, uh, in fact, some of his Nazi views. So that that came in the spring of, of two thousand and twenty. Um, you know, but but then a year later, right as I was talking to him, uh, Matt announced for for the first time that that he absolutely was still an extremist, and and now he's jumping back in actively to that world. Only this time, he's re- going to rebrand himself. He said, no longer uh, as a neo-Nazi, uh, but in Instead, as someone who targeted global elites, the government officials, corporate executives and rich bankers uh, who he thinks are controlling and, and ruining the world and need to be dealt with. If 200 Wall Street bankers took a unexpected dive um, or the Halliburton boardroom got lit up, is that murder or is that self-defense? If the systems they've created are murdering thousands of people every single year and expanding this murder around the world to the tune of millions, um, I don't know if I would consider that violence. I would call that self-defense. And would that be justified? Oh, abs- absolutely. Oh, whoa. Wait a minute. <laughs> Mark, let me stop there. Um, he doesn't sound like he's joking. He just said it's okay to go into a boardroom and commit mass murder. You know, right. You know, this is this is where, you know, he's really starting to go off the rails, you know, uh, quite frankly, Natasha and threat experts that we went to that we privately consulted with. They began telling us that Matt Matt does pose a real threat and that sort of burying our head in the sand about it could actually do more harm here. And ultimately, we decided to, you know, report some of this publicly. We begin tonight with a story you will only see here on Newsy. One of the organizers behind the deadly Charlottesville rally in 2017 tells us he's looking to reorganize. And he's openly supporting violence against corporate executives, other global leaders. Senior national investigative correspondent Mark Greenblatt spoke with the man and has his story tonight. Afterwards, the Twitterverse, it exploded. And a counterterrorism think tank called the Sufan Group put out an urgent intelligence brief. They're one of the nation's top uh, terrorism consultants. They're, they're run by a former uh, FBI supervisor who actually oversaw the investigation of the events surrounding 9-11. Uh, and, and, and this group's alert warned people that Matt's organizational skills in particular, along with his deep radical networks, are what they called – quote, a threat that should not be ignored, uh, including by law enforcement, by the way. You know, while, while what he says next is deeply disturbing, we've ultimately decided to let you hear it. There's a lot to want to be radical about, and uh, I think the situation calls for extremism. We talked about like Molotov cocktails sort of in some of these instances going into whether it was Halliburton or Tesla, you know, but is that the solution? Like, what do you do to oh, stop? Yes. Yes. Say that again? Yeah, yeah, no. These people have names and addresses, okay? Their kids have names and addresses, and the capitalist class, by hook or by crook, has to be liquidated. You know, that it's, it's called class war for a reason. You want to bring about a class war against oh, the global elites. It's already here. The class war is already here. I don't want to make manifest or do anything that doesn't already exist. I just think we should defend ourselves. Some people will say, Matt Matt Heimbach's off his rocker. He's advocating. He's advocating for harming for harming certain people here. How many billions need to be displaced, and how many cities need to be swallowed by the ocean before we could all just look around and say, 
these specific people did this because they did. When you say that these these global elite leaders have names and addresses and so do their families, mm -hmm. um, what do you want to see happen? Oh, I mean, put them on trial. George W. Bush should go on trial. Barack Obama should go on trial. Donald Trump should go on trial. Joe Biden should go on trial. All, all these people should be brought before a tribunal uh, and be given a fair and honest trial. Um, I do believe the people that fundamentally run the, the current global system um, are mass murderers. They're, they're not good guys. But when the system doesn't arrest or do put these people on trial, there are names and addresses of these there people. There are names and addresses. And, and I will not be, I, I mean, I'm not a soldier. Right? Uh, I will not be ordering anyone to do anything, uh, but I will not condemn revolutionaries that uh, you know stand in their own self-defense. You won't pull the trigger yourself, but you'll 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 applaud if it were to happen. If they did the right thing, wouldn't you? The right thing meaning kill the elites. I mean, wouldn't you? Like some really bad people. Like how many million Iraqis died because George W. Bush stared at the world and lied, lied through his teeth. Matt, where do you draw the line? I mean, is it okay to, to, to kill the president? Ooh, ooh, can't, uh, I'm gonna plead the fifth on that one. That's, <laughs> that's, uh, I, I've had enough government officials knock on my front door in the past six months. Plead the fifth. But. But, but, but pleading I, the fifth is when you, when you want to not incriminate yourself. You don't just. Oh, you got it. You got it, but I'm I'm not touching that one. I'm I'm not touching a sitting president. Uh, that's a, a bridge too far because we do not live in a free society, you know. So I'm just gonna not touch that one. But 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 why not just say no? That's not okay. Well, I'm not a liar, so I'm just not gonna touch it. I guess you just did in some ways, though. Sort of, I guess. In some of this, it kind of sounds like Matt Heimbach is inciting violence and murder. And it's almost like he thinks he can get away with saying this stuff without getting into trouble. Can he? That's ahead. Hey, all you true crime fans, this is Mike Ferguson. And this is Mike Morph. And we'd like to invite you to listen to our podcast, Criminology. Launched in 2017, we've covered a variety of strange cases from murders to missing persons. Some of the cases are ones you may not have heard of. Other cases we cover are some of the most historic in true crime. There are 200 episodes of Criminology available to binge on right now. And new episodes come out every Saturday night. Subscribe to Criminology today, wherever you listen to your podcast. So right before the break, we heard Matt Heimbach basically say that it's okay to kill the president. Mark, when you heard him say that, I mean, it's it's shocking. Is that legal for him to say? You know, Natasha, I mean, I, I, I don't I don't know the answer for sure, but I, I do know someone that might. Uh, this guy's name's Mark Bartholomew. He's a, a law professor at the University of Buffalo, um, a specialist in areas of the law uh, like these kinds of threats. So I gave him a ring. Mark, Mark, I'm 
I, I'm interested in like trying to figure out and unpack the, the, the law here. How is it that a guy can um, say these things openly and, and still be walking around free? Does the First Amendment, I, I mean, is, does it give freedom of speech without limit? So there are limits. You know, the First Amendment is not an, an absolute. And one of these limits is the true threat doctrine, which says that even though it's speech, but by making speech that puts someone in an imminent threat of danger or fear of their physical safety, that's something where the law is allowed to restrict that kind of speech. So it seems like the the question here is, is do we believe him that this is a, a, a real threat that he's making? Is that what you mean? In this situation in particular, the law is just so murky and undefined that the arguments on both sides, it's, it's, it's always about language, right, and interpreting words. One way to try to decide these things is just ask, well, would a, would a reasonable person perceive a threat here, right? Would the, the reasonable actor say, oh, yeah, by saying this, uh, the, the targets of his speech would have felt danger, when you hear what this guy, Matt Heimbach, said, he, he talks about how there are specific people who have names and addresses who did specific crimes that he believes should lead to being held to account on up to killing the people. Is that a true threat? When you name a name, that makes things worse. And Domestic terrorism is the number one terrorist threat in this country now. And even though I think that you look at history, of course, violence has been part of you know, political foments and rebellion for a long time. We are seeing a period, I think, where there's a lot more of this encouragement of, you know, sometimes acts and sometimes rhetoric of, of violence. I mean, just look at January 6th in the Capitol. So... I think that maybe shows that in the past, a court could say, well, you know, just talking about throwing a Molotov cocktail without more, I don't know, I need, I need more, that's kind of just political talk. We might be entering an age now where we, you know, potentially do need to consider these things more seriously. It sounds like he's walking this thin line right on the edge, but he's playing with some fire and the, the, the edge and the boundaries, it sounds like, could be redefined given the, the domestic threat for terrorism in the United States? You know, I don't think he ever says, I will directly commit these acts myself. And that's not a, a get out of jail for free card, but it does help. You know, if you're, if you say I'm going to harm someone, much more likely to see that as a true threat than if you say, well, other people should harm this person. Um, you know, you mentioned George W. Bush being specifically mentioned. That's bad, the more specific your target, the worse. But if you kind of dwell on, here's the name and address of this person that I think needs to be punished, supporters go out and punish them, then yes, that, that moves beyond the political to a true threat against someone. So I'm not saying he's always perfectly straddling this line. It sounds to me like some things, you know, definitely signal crossing over. I should tell you that Matt has begun live streaming again, and he says he's starting small, but does claim to have a couple dozen real new followers that are joining his old hate group as he rebrands. 
And I wondered flat out, what's the chance that this kind of talk could actually get people killed? I went back to Heidi Byrick, who's tracking extremists every day. I mean, once again, what what Heimbach is doing is he's lighting a match and he's handing the matchbook to somebody else. This isn't something now where if you ignore it, it's going to go away. So this is a very volatile period with a lot of activated white supremacists and neo-Nazis online. They're going to hear this rhetoric. And the scary thing is that somebody might act on it. And the threats against children in particular are, are really scary. I think the world does need to know about this. Law enforcement probably needs to know about what Matt Heimbach is up to. But not everyone wants to wait around to see what the police might do. There are American Nazi hunters fighting back. One of them is Daryl Lamont Jenkins. He's been an anti-fascist for a really long time, going back to the late 80s. He's one of the most well-known faces of the Antifa movement in the U.S. You'll often find him at white nationalist rallies with a camera, so he can document everyone and everything he sees. What's up, Matt? What's going on, man? Here he is confronting Matt Heimbach at a White Lives Matter rally in Shelbyville, Tennessee, a few months after Unite the Right. There's one thing I've always learned is that fascists never stay within their borders. You can have your own separate state, but then you guys want to try to attack us. We have seen it before. Why, it's been said online. Why don't we see and have our movement be able to work with communities of color? And Dugan doesn't want to do Daryl first met him in October 2012 when Matt was a student at Towson University. Matt invited white supremacist Jared Taylor to speak on campus, and Daryl came to document the event. Over the years, Daryl says they've crossed paths about a dozen times. And Daryl says Heimbach's latest rhetoric really does concern him. And sadly, the biggest fear I have is that somebody from his crew or just him can pop off and get somebody hurt. Um, so, yeah, take him seriously in that in that regard. It doesn't mean that he is amassing is amassing an army that can be a threat to our very existence or anything like that. But he can most certainly come up with people who are willing to do just that one thing, that mass shooting or something like that. Daryl says one tactic he and Antifa use to go after fascists is documenting and unmasking them to the world. Their names, images, addresses, and workplace all get published online. It's what's called doxing. And Daryl is actually considered the pioneer of it. In 2000, he founded the One People's Project. It's an organization that monitors and publishes information about alleged racists and those on the far right. But before Daryl confronted white supremacists with cameras, he would confront them with his fists. Right now, we are going to a place called the Court Tavern, which is on Church Street here in New Brunswick, New Jersey. It was a music venue that um, a lot that was around for good 20, 30 years. Daryl shows me one of the first places where he took on neo-Nazis. It was right here at the Court Tavern, where he and a group of friends ambushed several neo-Nazis at a punk show in the mid-90s. Somebody in the um, bar pointed them out. One of them's wearing a hoodie that says AC Skins 88. And they were from Atlantic City. 
and the 88. Eighth, it's a, it's a um, numeric code. H is the eighth letter of the alphabet. H, H, Heil Hitler. So they come out on their own. We don't yell and scream at them to do anything. They're coming out on their own and we're like, we're like, okay, shall we begin? <laughs> and our boy basically, basically just said, yo, man, UAC, UAC, cracks him across the back of his head with a truck chain. It was pandemonium from there. We was just like beating them up and down all over the street. Where this parking deck is, there was actually a parking lot. We was, we was um, fighting them in the parking lot. Were you fighting too? I was fighting too. One of our guys lost his shoe. He grabbed his shoe and started beating him down with that, just cracking him across his head about six or seven times. Then he pushes him to me. I beat him down a little bit. The guy's trying to get away from me. I'm holding on to him for dear life. He just wiggles out of his jacket and runs down the road with one shoe. I never saw him again. Daryl says the guy's jacket fit him, so he wore it for a few years after ripping off the white power patch. And he framed the patch. In fact, he still has it, like a trophy. I, I felt great about fighting back then. I mean, it, it's, it was kind of like unnecessary evil as far as I was concerned. Do you still fight? I'm 52 years old. <laughs> I fight if I have to, but I will not pursue that. But he still wears steel toe shoes just in case. We talked with Daryl multiple times over several months. And during one conversation, I called him up to ask him about the criticism that Antifa gets over its sometimes violent responses. Uh, you have the Anti-Defamation League that has said that aggressive tactics, including physical confrontations, can create, quote, a vicious self-defeating cycle of attacks, counterattacks, and blame. And and you also have, uh, you know, President Biden, who has condemned the use of violence from protesters on both the left and the right. Um, but he's talked about Antifa in that way, too. Um, what's your response to that? Well, I can't discount that 100%, obviously. And the only thing I could say to that is remember who it is we're dealing with. We are dealing with people who are themselves violent, who are themselves threatening violence upon others. So whenever we encounter these folks, these things are going to happen more often than not. We do our best to de-escalate such situations. We are not there to fight. We are there to expose. I get that, but I'm going to keep pushing back a little bit because why is it that you all need to be the ones punching these guys in the face? I mean, it's illegal. If they're assaulting you and they're using violence, why does that give you the right to use violence in return? I mean, isn't that what law enforcement is for? Well, I can tell you, law enforcement hasn't exactly um, been on the right side of history in the past couple of years. I don't think... Uh, Anyone really trusts law enforcement to do the right thing, especially when you see some law enforcement um, officers um, with the three percent of tattoos on their arms, for example. So if you have a society that distrusts the police that much, but know that there's a situation that needs to be taken care of, then, yes, you are going to see more of what you see in, say, Charlottesville or in Portland. As Daryl concentrates on fighting extremists in the U.S., he's paying close attention to their movements abroad. He says the transnational threat is growing. When you're talking about how they are trying to um, build globally, we should definitely take notice. 
and neutralize that ability. We have no business bringing them into this, allowing them to come into this country to formate some sort of insurrections here. Are you communicating with Antifa activists abroad? One of the things that we are doing now is networking with folks from overseas, working with people in Croatia, in Norway, Germany. I've been on several podcasts or several um, webinars um, over the past couple of months alone to try to um, to network and try to help um, others um, from overseas to try to um, deal with their fascism. We don't want fascism in this society. Daryl's work to fight extremists has made him and his family targets for death threats. And that was on his mind as he showed me around his office. Where and where are we exactly? Um, want to be very careful with that one. Okay. okay. <laughs> and why do you not want people to know because where you're located? I don't want them out. I don't want the Nazis outside. Whether <laughs> they want to come and protest or blow the place up. <laughs> I'm one of the more visible anti-fascists out there. And um, I don't want to give them a trophy. <laughs> right. We're here at my office. Can't know exactly where it is, but... <laughs> And this is your office? Yes, this is my office. You have all this um, anti-fascist paraphernalia. He's been collecting this stuff for years. It's, it's almost like a museum. He shows me old broadcasts from conservative radio, a poster called The Fascism Checklist. And then behind his desk, there's a big Black Lives Matter flag. There are also boots and shirts featuring swastikas. And then on top of a shelf, I spot a Klansman hoodie once owned by someone Daryl helped to de-radicalize. Right next to that is a shield used by one of the white nationalists at the Unite the Right rally. Kind of like the steady order of progression here, because it ends with the Charlottesville shield. <laughs> and it wasn't intentional. It just happened to look that way. And in between, in the years since the violent rally, he's thought a lot about how he wants Antifa to go down in history books. You've been doing this for a long time now. How is it that you don't get tired of this fight? I don't get tired because every day is a new thing. <laughs> Is, no, I mean, you know, you get older and you know that you just have to be there to, um, you know, pass it off to the next generation and everything. I mean, I think one of the best things, the reason why I don't get tired of it is because I kind of got reinvigorated by the fact that folks are finally listening to us to some, to some extent, but the job still has to be done because they're not listening to us enough. Daryl's done his fighting in the streets, but now the extremist threat is exploding online. As young recruits sign up, who's got their eyes on them? I'm just like a weird neurotic sword collector who tracks Nazis all day. That's what I do. If I get killed because I was talking too loudly about the dangers this presents, there are worse ways to go. That's next time on Verified. There's so much more for you to discover about this story and what's coming up on the show. You can find us on Twitter at Verpod. We're also on Instagram and Facebook if you just search for Verified Pod. And if you have a story to tell us, 
send a voicemail or an email to verified at scripps.com. That's verified at S-C-R-I-P-P-S dot com. If you like the show and believe in this kind of storytelling, please give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. It'll help more people discover Verified. I'm your host, Natasha Del Toro. This is Verified. Thanks for listening.